The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Good morning, church. The reading is on page, where to go? 1024. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. God bless the reading of the word. Teachings that we're in right now is uh, really a part of a series of teachings that we've entitled History Worth Repeating. Now, most of us right now in our culture today are thinking back through what history we might know, and there's very little history worth repeating. Can I get an amen to that? I mean, there are times and moments where in our humanity, God has done miraculous things, sometimes in individuals, sometimes in groups of people, and sometimes in nations. But that's not generally what we remember. We're generally remembering the people that have oppressed or have done harm or in many occasions thought that they were doing the right thing, but yet they and themselves ended up doing the wrong thing. And so there is so much in history that's not worth repeating. And so let me just stop here just for a moment because I know that because of the the absence of a lot of our people, many are going to be catching up in the podcast. And so as we do this, I want you to know we do have a new app that you can download, whether in any of the Google stores or any of the iPhone stuff, you can find it. We want to encourage you to, because much like Edna needing to be prayed for this morning, there's prayer requests that, are, that, are, that you can literally submit them, and then it can get out to the whole church quickly through it, as well as there's notes for us to follow along in our sermon teachings, except for this Sunday. Um, and... Um, just a little caveat there, but it will be up there for most of the time before most podcasters listen. But, um, but there's so much in the app that we can follow along and use to help us. And even going to start using things like push notifications so that when Andrew and Caitlin text me in the middle of the night, I can send notice out to our prayer people saying, hey, look, this is a young lady that needs our prayers. And so um, I want us to get used to using that. And many of you that have been a part of our Gallery Church family for a while usually know in January we set aside a specific amount of time to pray. Um, We are going to be doing a special three-day fasting and prayer initiative, January 22nd, 23rd, and the 24th. So every morning of those three days, this room will be open from 7.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. for people to come here and pray before you go to work. It'll be open from noon to 1 for people to pray in the middle of the afternoon. And then every evening from 6.30 till around 9 p.m. or so, we're going to be having times of silent prayer, times of guided prayer, times of praying through music, um, as well as some encouragement through some scriptures um, each of the evenings. And so we have done longer periods of time in January, but... For a lot of different circumstances, we are feeling led to push our prayer over a long haul this year to our Lent season. So we're going to be doing some things from Ash Wednesday all the way through to Easter Sunday that I think are going to be better for the maturity of your church, as well as for the heart, soul, mind of your pastor that will allow us to be able to mature and to get ready for Easter. Because believe it or not, Easter is coming. Is that not exciting? All right, but let's just say this. Weren't we supposed to be celebrating Easter every Sunday? Because yeah, Jesus is just as alive today as he's going to be on Easter Sunday, right? Yeah, some of you are like, yeah, all right. All right. I, I dare you to respond to the Ravens game with that level of enthusiasm later today, all right? Some of you are like, I will, because I hate the Ravens, all right? But I'm just saying that those of you that love the Ravens, you need to, to be ready for this. And so... Um, I actually want to draw our attention back because we've had so... Um, Uh, difficulty in being present with one another. So there's been some things said the last couple of weeks that if you have not heard them, we need to hear them so that we can be in the same page with one another. So if this is your first time with us or first time in a long time, I would encourage you to go back to the Sunday, the 23rd before Christmas, as well as the, the teaching we had last week, as well as revisiting what we're talking about today because what we're doing is, is we're throwing out some things over this period of time that are, we are planting seeds of learning because over the next six months, 
we need to check ourselves and say, where is the joy of my salvation? Are people attracted to Jesus through me? Are people even in my life growing in their faith? I was, I, a couple of years ago, I was at a major, major denominations, denominational meeting because they had shared some support with our church family. And I was sitting in a meeting when one of their denominational executives stood up and he basically had a confession based upon their research that that particular denomination was only baptizing blood-borne children of the parents already in the church. So all the baptism numbers that they were sharing with, the, with their denomination, the majority of them were just because they had procreated. I want you guys to understand. Do you guys get what I'm saying? Is that there weren't new people coming into the church. They were only spreading the baptism that God had commanded us to onto their children, but they themselves weren't inviting new people outside of their bloodline onto a faith journey. I'm grateful that hasn't been our story here because the majority of you are not having children. Um, and we are a much younger congregation than average, but I am hearing that some of you are announcing um, children coming in, and that's exciting. But yet we need to, if we, if we follow what the, the, the people that hung out with Jesus, we call them the disciples, right? If we do what they told us to do because they were taught by Jesus, then we're not just telling our blood-born children about Jesus. Okay, that's not what we were commanded to do. We were commanded to go to everyone because Christ's blood covers all of that. So we are going to keep our Advent candles lit for a little bit longer. Can any of you come up with a reason before I give it of why we would do that? Because what? Because we can. All right, well, at the, yes, well, that's the best answer been given yet. Um, because are we really out of the Advent season? No, we are in Advent every day. Can I get you guys to hear me when I say this? Advent is our life. We are in between people. We're in between the, the ascension of Jesus and his return. And Advent is the period in between where we focus on the peace, the joy, the love, the hope of Jesus Christ in a time period where darkness needs light. And so there's so much about what we're facing is that we're going to try to figure out a way over the next several weeks, maybe even leading up to Easter, that we keep these lit because I want us to constantly be reminded of the fact that what Jesus said to us is for us. We're not just meant to live in heaven someday. We're actually meant to bring a little bit of it with us now. We're supposed to be in-breaking people. When people meet us, they should get a glimpse of eternity. We should be almost like a doorway, almost like prayer is a, a way for us to step into the throne room of God. When people meet us, they should have a chance of getting a, uh, to see hope in us. And so there's so much that we need to do in regard to that. So I took the last week of Advent, which we focused on the word love that Sunday before, and I shared a question with you. Do any of you remember the question? There were like 10 of you here that Sunday. So you, it's very likely that a lot of you weren't here, but do you guys remember the question that I said was healthy for us to ask that focuses on the word love? And if you had the app, you could already have answered it because it's in the there you go. What does love require of us? So back in September when we were dealing with some really heavy questions, we were answering it, a lot of it with, um, let's ask better questions. Don't you love that when somebody says to your question another question? I know that doesn't work well in my marriage, um, but it, it's, it's a lot of times it's something that needs to work in our lives. But here, I think we need to come up with some new questions. And let me tell you why, because people don't want to hear our answers anymore. We live in a world that has given up on everything except for Jesus. They've given up on his church. They've given up on pastors, priests, bishops, elders. They've given up on regular church gatherings. But you talk to most people, they would love to meet Jesus, but they don't want to meet people that follow Jesus. They don't want to read books that talk about Jesus because they're sick of other things. But so we as a church need to begin to figure out other questions. And so in the month of September, I said, I'm tired as a pastor of being asked the question, well, what's sin and what's not sin? Do you remember the question that I said that would be good for us to, to, to replace? What was it? What makes you look really 
Yes. If I continue to do this activity, does it make me more like Jesus? So rather than going around looking for a list of sins, like can I do this, can I not do this, can we simplify it to just say, if I make this a pattern in my life, am I going to look more like Jesus? And so if we can begin to figure out something that connects with you. Some of you, the question in September is going to be the question that connects with you. Others of you, you're going to connect with the question at Christmas time. What does love require of me? But at the end of the day, we need to become more and more into the image of Jesus Christ because of a world around us is desperately looking for hope. They're desperately looking for peace. And we contain all of that in the promises of Jesus Christ. And so we also talked last week about one of the descriptions in the New Testament that we read over. The, the, the people that spent time with Jesus, even Jesus resurrected. you guys understand that there were over 500 people documented in the New Testament that actually spent time with the resurrected Jesus? That's a pretty strong eyewitness account. And when they talked about the Jesus that was resurrected, they added an adjective to the front of his name. And what was the adjective? The Lord Jesus Christ. That is not just a surname or a name that you would add on to just add some specifics or some clarity. Do you guys understand the connotation of what the word Lord really means? Somebody give me an answer. What does the word Lord really mean? Master, boss, king. Authority, right? And so do you think that they were just lackadaisically saying, oh, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, my homeboy, right? Like the T-shirts from the 70s and the 80s that only a few of you would even recall, right? right? But yet they talked about him as the Lord Jesus Christ, the Master Jesus Christ, the Authority Jesus Christ. And when you call somebody your Lord, what are you basically saying to them? Your will be done, right? You can't have somebody your Lord and be in constant argumentation with them because then much like, I don't know, I was watching a movie yesterday with my family and there's a character that kept screaming, off with your head! Um, and so I just keep thinking about people that abuse power and authority and, and that's generally the posture that you think of when you, bump, when you bump up against somebody that has absolute authority. They can do absolute judgment, Right? They can do those kind of things. But the early church witnessed Jesus alive after the resurrection, heard him teach, saw his scars, were praying in rooms that with doors locked, and he just shows up. Those people wrote letters to the early church. Those people encouraged early church people saying, when I saw the resurrected Jesus, it proved to me that he was my Lord. And so if you didn't hear last week's teaching, I want to encourage you. I actually said a few more things than that. Um, but this week I want us to come to a passage of Scripture that I hope will serve as a branch that we can build a lot on this year. Because if you're catching what I'm saying, we have a lot to be caught up on. Let me ask a question, and I don't want you to be fearful in showing your hands. So some of you that don't mind showing your hands first just to get the party started, I would love for you to be brave. Because some of you, I could say, are you breathing, and you wouldn't raise your hand. <laughs> because that's just part of what you don't want to be identified in church or something like that. But let me ask you guys this question. How many of you in here right now feel prepared to talk to your mom, your dad, your brothers, your coworkers, your neighbors, and you feel prepared to talk to them about Jesus Christ. You feel like, I can talk to them. I have no fear, no, 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 no hesitations. All right? I just want you guys to look around the room. There's not a lot of us raising our hands. And that's what I anticipated. But if we do this effectively, if we teach and listen and learn actively over these next several months, I promise us by Easter time, we will be near 100%. And there are some stumbling blocks. And one of them is this. Jesus isn't really your Lord. It's not that he's not your Savior. And it's not that he hasn't been your healer. And it's not that he's been a good teacher for you. But we not, we're not yet comfortable with him telling us what to do. 
And because of that, we're not doing simple things that we know we ought to be doing. Because have you, do you recall a moment when you've been rebellious to anybody? I can remember some of my teen years and the moments where I just buckled back and, and my mom is present. She'd be happy to share some stories with you. Um, but there's moments where you know the right thing to do, but yet you refuse to do it. There is a little bit of that in the church. When I say the church, I'm talking about Jesus' people. Right? There's a little bit of, well, you know what? I know that I'm supposed to talk about Christ to my neighbor, but Jesus isn't doing this for me, so I'm going to withhold this from him. Okay? We need to be careful that there's not a rebelliousness in us. But yet this week, I want us to understand that, that, that it is our responsibility. If, if you have said, I want Jesus in my life, it comes with it. It's not that I can now choose it's that it comes with it. It's like, if, if I truly understand the great gift of God for me, why would I then, then not want to tell people about it? And so in 1 Peter chapter 3, we use 1 Peter 3.8. It's on the actual sign in the lobby downstairs as you walk out. I would encourage you to look at it. But Peter is writing a letter to the early church. And let me get all of our eyes up here just for a moment. Some of you are turning your Bibles and all of that. But I want you guys to see me as I say this. Peter is writing the words we're about ready to read after he's been teaching them about the difficulty of unity in the church. Okay, so when you look at the first three chapters in the letter Peter wrote, his first letter, he's going around and saying, you ladies, I know this is how difficult it is for you. You men, I know how this is what life is like for you. Some of you are rich. This is how difficult it is for you. Though Some of you are poor. This is how difficult this is for you. Some of you have been abusive masters. This is what you're now to do. And some of you have been abused by others. This is what you're supposed to do. But in Jesus Christ, therefore, all of you. This is what he's saying in this letter up to this point. And then in verse 15, he says this. But in your hearts, revere Christ as what? Lord. Ab. Absolute authority. Jesus is the absolute authority. He is master. He is king. He is at the top of the command chain. There is nobody superior to him in authority in our lives, period. Okay? And then it goes on. Always be prepared to give a what? Answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And so let me break this down from biblical language and put it in what I feel like is language that would help us to personalize this a little bit more. So I rewrote the verse to say this, always be prepared to provide an explanation to everyone who asks you to explain why you've chosen to put your hope in Christ and make him your Lord. I don't know if there's any other way that we can try to make it this simple. But Peter's heart was to prepare the people to be ready to give an explanation. And I want to have a heart as Peter does to you. I would love to be able to walk as Peter did with us in this room right now. So that each of you feels like that you've been prepared to give an explanation to other people of why you have chosen Jesus. Not, and in our generation, this is quite challenging. Because there are other people that claim Jesus right now that are making it very difficult for us to be followers of Jesus Christ. So there's in-house issues that need to be addressed, but let it not be said of us in this room. We can't control the people outside of this room, but as a body of believers gathering here, we can do a lot together. We can guard the image of Christ in the people that interact with us. We can't control the television other than to turn it off. You can't control Facebook other than to shut it down. All right, you need to stop scrolling Twitter. Unfollow some people. Follow some right people. Right? But we need to get to a point where it is all about our Lord Jesus Christ. And that he has our heart, he has our mind, he has our soul, he has our strength. And that is whom we're following after. Every generation of believers must be prepared to defend their decisions of following the Lord Jesus I believe that something important, every generation of believers needs to be able to explain the, their reasons to the generation they're currently serving in. I know a lot of Christians that would be really good at evangelism in the 50s and the 60s. I know a lot of Christians that, that are prepared to evangelize in a way to another generation. 
I do believe that there's some things in our culture today that are unique challenges to us, to you in particular. I'm about ready to have another birthday soon, and I'm going to be 46 years old, and many of you are like, wow, that's old. Others of you are like, wow, that's young, but that wow yet young is a very small portion of this audience. But I just want you to know, I'm being asked by God, I feel like, in a very unique time to lead people, as Peter was leading in his generation, to give an explanation. There are some challenges in our culture that are making it incredibly hard for you in confidence to look your neighbor in the face and say, I love Jesus. And let me tell you why. I appreciate Peaches. I follow her on Facebook. She made an adamant claim yesterday, like all caps, screaming, like if Facebook had volume, she was at the top telling people that she loves Jesus Christ. You know, and I'm like, what, what, what would it take for us to not be scared to be identified with Jesus Christ anymore? I want us, by Easter, to have grown in the maturity and the confidence of our faith that the things that are distracting us will no longer be a distraction. Peter believed this, and I believe this for us, and I want to continue this with us. But look at what he goes on to say at the end of verse 15 and of verse 16. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So there's two sides of this. As a Peter's heart to you, is we need to take time to talk about the things that we're doing, and then we need to take time to be able to talk about why we believe in Jesus. Because if our words don't match our actions, we're in serious trouble. So there's going to be some moments in the next couple of weeks that might feel a little bit uncomfortable because we're going to be talking about what is it, can, does this grow the image of Jesus in me? So that when I say I follow Jesus, people aren't like, wow, that doesn't match up. And so that's going to be uncomfortable. There's actually a term used by the people that sat with Jesus that, that talked about it as a pruning. Uh, you mean I'm going to come to church and we're going to have some Holy Spirit shears and he's going to chop something off? I'm like, well, that might happen. And for some of us, it might actually mean it feels like we're cutting it down to the stump. But if we also listen to the same people that witnessed the resurrection, they say God can bring new life from the stump. Are we okay with that? Or do we love who we are so much that we give our Lord limitations? Does our Lord have limitations of how much we are really going to follow him? That we really give him freedom to speak into our life? Um, all right. I want to give one example this Sunday. And this might be hard for some of you. I have a feeling if you're under the age of 30, this might not be as challenging. But if you're over the age of 30, it probably is going to be a little bit more challenging because it has to do with the way that I have this displayed. Has anybody even gotten a hint of what this might represent this morning? Books of the Bible. Peaches gets a trophy. All right. There are 66 books that I randomly picked off my library, and, I, and if you're podcasting, I want you to know I have turned the edges of the book so nobody can read what's on the back because I didn't want you distracted by whatever books were in my library that I threw into a bag and brought over here. Um, but these represent 66. So those of you that have been to church for a while, let me ask you, how many of them are in the Old Testament? Some of you are counting. 39. I heard 39. Is everybody pretty confident that 39 is a good answer? So those of you that love math, if there's 66 books in the Bible and 39 of them are in the Old Testament, how many are in the New Testament? 56? Did I hear somebody say 56? All right. That's great. Can you count our offering for us at the end? Um, the, uh, there's 27 here, right? Okay. So we've divided, we've divided the Bible... Right? This is the Bible. This, these books on the table are a living illustration of what this represents. So how many books are inside of the Bible? 66. How many Old Testament ones are in here? 39. How many New Testament ones are in here? 27. All right, you guys are listening. You're tracking. You're actually getting more participation. I'm glad. You guys are growing in confidence. So is this a book or is this a library? All right, this is a library. 
The Bible actually means library, okay? It's a creative way. That's why some of them actually add the word holy to it. So it's a holy library, right? Okay, so let me, before I go any farther, I want to say something to you. Because some of you in this room right now do not talk about Jesus because of what you believe about this. And for those of you that are podcasting and holding up the Bible, this is a hang-up for you to talk about Jesus. Either you don't know enough, so you live in fear, or you've been taught to use it poorly. You don't understand it, so therefore you don't use it. But can I also say to people that aren't in this room, they no longer view this as an authority. When I grew up, what did the pastor say? The Bible says, right? And so there's now a generation that says, so what? They say the same thing about the Quran and other holy books, right? They don't, they, don't, they don't believe in a holy book anymore. So does that mean that our faith crumbles? Does that mean that our evangelism is no longer effective? And so whether you in this room, which I'm going to be talking specifically to you, because I said over the next several months we're going to be growing in our foundation of what I feel like is going to be important for us to move forward on. But for those of you in this room that are struggling to understand this book or this library of books, I want you to understand a couple of things this morning. Because the authority of the Bible has been taken from it, not because the Holy Spirit has decided to just stay uninvolved, but it's because of pastors like myself, priests, bishops, elders have misused it. There have been kings and queens in church history and in world history that have misused it. And so right now you can Google how to prove the Bible is false and all the different types of atheistic writers or people that have blogged will come up with things and you'll read it and be like, hmm, well, all right, I don't have an answer for that. So what's easier in my life? Just I'm just not going to be identified as a Christian because if I identify as a Christian, then I've got to deal with people's beliefs in this. And because we feel ill-equipped and we look at this illustration like, wow, that is a whole lot of learning. And I don't know if I have time for that because I have a life to live because I'm the Lord of my life. And so there's a lot that we need to begin to start in the conversation. I want to share a quote from Andy Stanley that we'll have to unpack for a few weeks, but I want to share this with you. The foundation of our faith is not the inspired book but the events that inspired the book. I want you guys to hear me when I say this. This is very powerful and very important for understanding. And if you've heard me through the introduction, I've been spending time repeatedly saying the people who witnessed the resurrection. Peter, I called him out by name. John, I called him out by name. They walked with Jesus. They struggled with Jesus. They abandoned Jesus. They were locked away in a room because they were scared to be identified with Jesus. Jesus walked into a room they were in with the door locked, and they were like, I now believe in you, Jesus. And they began to change the world. People were attracted to them. Did they have at the time access to 39 books? Yes. It's a trick question. They could go to the synagogue, right? And they could unroll a scroll, right? That, a scroll is an old book, right? I mean, it was, in, it was rolled up like a taco, but it was, it was a book to them. They could go get the scroll of Isaiah. We call it the book of Isaiah. And they could read it, right? Did they have any access to the 27 books that we have? No. The majority of them lived their life following Jesus, only saying to each other, do you remember when we hung out with Jesus? They didn't have to go around and disprove scriptures to the Gentiles because how many of the scriptures in the old book did the Gentiles believe? None of them. But yet their faith changed the known world. People were moving. The foundation of our faith is not the way that we read the testimonies of the, 
of the way God has moved in the Jewish people or in, in the Christianity in the, in the past. Our foundation is built upon, let me just give you the first part of his name, Lord Christ. Say it out loud, Lord. All right, you guys got Christ, you guys got Jesus. Lord, you guys have Lord, you guys have Jesus. I have Christ. Christ, right? So that's who the foundation is on, right? So if somebody comes up to you and says, like, um, what was the famous atheist recently that just passed away? Uh, Hawkins? Stephen Hawkins, right? Um, uh, he come up to you and say, I just, I don't believe, I can show you errors in the Old Testament and contradictions in the New Testament, and I don't believe a word of the Bible. You know what you can say to him? Which, he's not here. Um, but you can say to him, that doesn't matter because I'm, I, I, my, my foundation is in the fact that Jesus is resurrected. You can't change that. You can say whatever you want about this, but you can't change the fact that Jesus is alive. Because my foundation is strengthened by my understanding of this, but you don't believe in it, so you're not going to get any strength out of it. My strength is in the fact that the Holy Spirit has revealed to me that Jesus is alive. And by the way, I trust the 500 witnesses that saw him alive. So my faith isn't rooted in some false hope. My, my faith is rooted in a testimony that's been passed down from generation to generation. And, and there's not a one of us in here that should be afraid to do that. But if we, if we talk about this in light of 1 Peter 3.15, here's two questions I want you guys to, to ponder. They're not on the slides for you, but I'll put them in the app. What is the faith? of our generation worth to us? What is the faith of our generation worth to us? Some of you might be like, well, I guess it isn't worth a whole lot because I'm not really even moved emotionally by that question. Let me ask it a little bit differently. What is the faith of your classmates worth to you? What is the faith of your coworkers worth to you? What is the faith of your siblings worth to you? Some of you have posted pictures recently of times with cousins and aunts and uncles to your social media pages. Let me ask you, what is, your, what is their faith worth to you? Some of you, like, what is, their, what is the faith of your neighbors? What is the faith of your grandchildren? What is the faith of the people that God has placed in relationship with you? What is the, what is your, what is the faith of Jesus worth to your contact list in your mobile phone? That's what Peter was addressing in 1 Peter 1, 3. And so this book, let me explain this to you just a little bit here, and I want to make this as clear as I possibly can. This Old Testament, we call it, was first called Old Testament because there was a man in the year 100 and something, you can Google it, but he wanted a friend named Onesimus to know how Jesus fit into the Jewish scriptures. So this man went to Jerusalem and gathered a scroll from every book of the Jewish scriptures and put it together. And it wasn't until he wrote a letter to him that he said, for the first time, I have assembled based upon your curiosity of the Lord Jesus Christ and his part coming out of Israel. I've assembled all the books so you can find Jesus. So I have gathered up all of the old covenant. First time it was ever said. And what was the motivation for doing it? Was for helping people, helping a person to see Jesus in what? In the scriptures that were given to whom? To Jewish people. So what he intended for Onesimus 2,000, almost 2,000 years later, for some of you, has now become a distraction. Because when we see Old Testament, we only focus on which word? Old. Now, to our Jewish brothers and Jewish family friends, Hebrew people like my friend Rabbi Mintz, does he believe this is old? It might be old in regards of timing, but it is very new in their synagogue worship every Saturday. I was with them not long ago after the shooting in Pittsburgh where I went to a prayer time, and they were in these scriptures alive and fresh. So is it offensive for me to tell them, oh, those are the old books? Slightly, right? Because to them, this was God's words to them. Do you understand? 
This is the covenant that God had made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And those are fighting words when you say, oh, those are old and unnecessary. It's like me saying, my mom is here, and oh, she's old and unnecessary. Right? Most of you are like, wow, that's very offensive. Well, welcome to the Jewish people. Right? This, so over the next several weeks, a couple of things you're going to see me do is you're going to hear me as we talk about this. I'm going to be dropping the word old in the, in the word testament from my description, and I'm going to talk about this as the Hebrew Bible. I'm going to talk to you about this about as the Jewish scriptures because that's what they are. This was God's plan for the nation of Israel to be a hope to all nations. But when the cross of Jesus Christ showed up, what did he do to this? Did he destroy it? No, he fulfilled it. It's done. So for those of us that believe in Jesus, it doesn't mean that this has no value, but we're not bound to this anymore. This is why in a married relationship, if a wife commits adultery, we don't kill her. This is why we don't worship on Saturdays anymore. Because if we were bound to the literal words of this Jewish scripture, you and I would be required to worship on what day of the week? Saturday. It would start on Friday night and go all the way through to Saturday night. So why is it okay for us to say, oh, that's irrelevant, but then go to another portion of it and say, oh, that applies to me? We can't pick and choose. We can't have one foot in the Old Testament, one foot out of the Old Testament. We've been in the book of Acts long enough to know that Paul was telling the church, you can't be in and you can't be out. You can't be requiring circumcision. And then you can't be, right? So he's saying to them, like, look, you, you, this was completed. It's done. This is my covenant to you. Not me. I'm not talking about Ellis Prince, right? I didn't. None of my names are in any of the New Testament. It might be, I hope, if we were in Acts chapter 2019. I'd love to get a little verse, but that's. But right now, this is this is what Jesus and the people that resurrected, that saw the resurrected Jesus said. Do you understand? These people saw Jesus resurrected, and they said this. So when Jesus said to them, a new covenant I give to you, this is how they interpreted it. So is this written to those of us that believe in Jesus? No. This was written to those of us that believe in Jesus. This was written to whom? Jewish people. This was written to us. That's why we don't kill our wives when they commit adultery or stone our children when they're disobedient. Because this tells us to do it, but this doesn't. This tells us that you can wage war against your enemies. This tells you to pray for your enemies and, by the way, suffer for their sake. So do we get to pick and choose which covenant we're under? No, Jesus picked it. We live in a time where you and I have to understand what we're doing with the Bible. We live in a time where you and I have to begin to understand what it is that we need to be focused on and, and to set some things down. This is very important. That's the reason why we even hand it out to our growth community leaders before the end of the year as a way of encouraging their soul, a way of using the Psalms of Ascent as a way of encouraging and challenging their spirit because there's so much that we can still learn by the way God moved and spoke to people even before Jesus came. But there's a covenant that we now have with Jesus where it is very specific and clear to you and I of what it looks like to be a representative of Jesus Christ in this world. And that does not mean that I can throw stones at somebody. It means I set that side of my life down and now I figure out a way of seeking peace and pursuing it in a whole new way. Sorry, I missed my spot in my notes here. So the scripture passage we read today, or that Cameron read for us in Luke chapter 1. Would you put it up on the screen for me, Josie? Luke chapter 1. So if, this, if these stacks of books were literal, what book of the New Testament is Luke? Like in order. 
Three. All right, we got a confident three. So one, two, three. Okay, this book is going to represent Luke. This is what I'm going to say to us as a church, at least for the next six months. I want us, many of you are, have committed to read scriptures this year. Many of you have agreed to um, try to be renewed in your faith. If there was a way that I could, without making a total mess, do this. And for those of you that are podcasting, you should be here. Um, What have I just done? I reversed the order. So now what's in the front? The New Testament. What what, What motivated the first guy ever to call the Old Testament old? He had a friend that had what? experienced Christ and wanted to find the promises of Christ in the Jewish scriptures. So he went to, so let's find Christ and then let's go through the rest of scripture. But what I'm saying to us today is don't start with Matthew, start with Luke. Start with Luke. Move Luke to the front of your Bible. Because look at this. Imagine page one, chapter one, verse one of the Bible. Many of you have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. Look at verse 5. We didn't read it earlier. So he starts, In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, whose wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Does that not sound like a great place for the Bible to start? Some of you aren't shaking your head, so I have a lot more persuasion to do. And that's what I hope that we can do over the next several weeks, because I know for many of you this is not what you're normally used to hearing. But let me just tell you this, because of the way that the Bible has been published and mass produced for the world to see, there are people that don't know what they're doing with this, and they're making it incredibly hard for people to see Jesus. There have been wars caused in the world, and people have quoted Bible verses to start them. There have been slaves held in slavery, and people have used Bible verses to hold them into slavery. This is a very powerful but dangerous set of teachings. And those of us that have our faith and hope in Jesus Christ, we can set aside the confusion and we can focus on Jesus. And it's not a distraction for us. But you will bump into a neighbor who has spent time Googling and searching and finding reasons for why this can't be believed and why that isn't right and why the story of creation is all messed up and it doesn't match up to science and all of that. And let them talk but you tell them why you believe in a resurrected Jesus. You don't have to be able to go back and say, well, but the the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 is this. We don't have to argue with them and persuade them to believe about the origins of the world because the foundation of our faith is in whom? Jesus Christ. Where does the foundations of the world start? Jesus Christ. Where does the foundation of faith start? Jesus Christ. Where does the foundation of suffering start? Jesus Christ. Where does the foundation of joy start? Jesus Christ. Where does the foundation of any hope of tomorrow start? It's in Jesus Christ. And that's what the early church believed. And if you want to argue with me over it, go back to two chapters that we've already taught through in the fall. You can find the podcast. If I was kind to you, I'd have picked the date so you wouldn't have to look for them. But Acts chapter 13, we did a teaching on Paul's words to the church in the synagogue in Antioch, which was a Jewish audience, and then Paul's words in Acts 17 to the church, oh shoot, where was it? Corinth, where they had all these idols, to unknown gods, or to known gods. And if he was in the Jewish world, he went to the Old Testament And he started with them, let me go back to your ancestors, and let me walk through the lineage of your kings, and let me tell you why Jesus is a part of that. But is that what he did when he saw idolatry everywhere? If he used the same principles that he did in Acts 13, why did he not start out with the verse from Exodus, you shall have no before me, and then continue on? 
Do not make any images. Do not make any graven images. So if he had the same sermon writing style that he did in Acts 13, that he did in Acts 17, he would have let out with the book of Acts, like all these idols need to be torn down. But he didn't. He looked around because he knew his audience and he said, you know what, you have an idol over there that's an idol to an unknown God. So let me tell you about the God you yet have to discover. And he began to share his faith in what he had seen because let me remind you of this. Paul saw the resurrected Jesus. Paul, before Jesus, killed Christians, stoned them, based upon which set of scriptures. He found his strength to persecute people that believed in Jesus because of the way that he was interpreting things that had been handed down to him. But you find here where he's no longer throwing stones. Once he met Jesus, he stopped throwing stones. Once he met Jesus, he looked at his audience and said, ladies, let me talk to you about the hope I found in Jesus Christ. He says, men, let me talk to you about husbands and wives, you know, the church, uh, church here. He, he was sensitive to the Holy Spirit, but he started with the resurrected hope in Jesus Christ. It was always, when, when he was challenged about false prophets, what was his answer? Do they believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Every time somebody would come up to him and say, is this person worth following? He says, well, what do they believe about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? He never said to them, do they believe the Bible? He never responded that way. Do they believe in any holy writings? He never said that to any of them. He would look at them and say, if they're teaching you about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that was what was important to him. So let me say to us as I summarize this teaching for all of you today. Our foundation in our belief in Jesus Christ is based upon the eyewitness accounts that Jesus is alive and everything he said is true. That is our foundation. The foundation of everything that we believe is on the fact that, thank the Lord, Luke wrote a most excellent account to Theophilus. He not only did that in the gospel, he turned to the book of Acts and he wrote that. He went on missionary journeys with Paul so he could document, so you and I could have an eyewitness account of what the early church was doing. And this series about discovering history worth repeating is about you and I discovering the foundation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and repeating what they did. I don't want us to repeat the church history of recent history. I want us to repeat the church history that changed the world where people were drawn to them. They had visions and dreams and would come to them and say, I just had a dream and I need you to tell me about it. Like there's power in that. Our hope is found in Jesus Christ and him and him alone. So the beginning of our faith is Jesus Christ. The foundation of our faith is Jesus Christ. And we have the same spirit given to us that was the spirit of Christ. We call him the Holy Spirit. A few decades ago, they called him the Holy Ghost. I'm glad we're not calling him that anymore. Um, But we're calling this spirit, the spirit of Christ. And what Paul, who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus on the Damascus Road, said to the church in Ephesus was this. The spirit will seal you up in Christ. And he will give you power. He will give you wisdom. And he will give you revelation. So that you can go and tell people the hope of the gospel, which is Jesus came, he died, he rose, and he's coming back for our sins to be forgiven. And so for us today, what I want us to do, is I want us to figure out a way of us shedding all of the things that hinder us. And I know some of you in here, the illustration about the Bible, this is not your stumbling block. So this was not the sermon for you, but this could be a sermon for one of your friends. Because you have, a, you have a, a good understanding. You understand the Christian letters versus the old letters to the Jewish people. You understand what that means. But I'm gathering from the majority of the responses that we were getting that there is still a lot of confusion of why it's called Old Testament and New Testament included in one book called the Bible, but it's a library. That was supposed to be funny. Um, but we need to, at some level, get back to the fact that the Bible starts with Jesus Christ. The hope of the world starts with Jesus Christ. And we've got to figure out people that we love so much that we can follow Luke's example and we can say, Theophilus, let me tell you why I believe. 
let me tell you what I've researched that's caused me to believe in the hope in Jesus Christ. And that's what I want for us as a church family. Let's pray together. Father, we want to excel in love. We want you to be our Lord. And we don't want anything to hinder us from loving you fully and serving you. Father, would you continue to teach us to pray? Would you continue to teach us to be prepared for an explanation? Father, I don't want a church that's just comfortable being together. I want a church that feels empowered. Um, Father, I want to be a part of that. I, I want to be one of the members of a church that believes in the power and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, there's so much that attacks us intellectually and emotionally. We only want to hold on to the things that are true. And Father, according to what Luke and Matthew and John and Mark wrote, Jesus said he was truth. So Father, we want to hold on to Jesus as the truth, the way. And so Father, I, I don't want there to be a spirit of confusion. But Father, would we... Would you give us the strength to be determined to continue to meet together regularly so we can work this out? Father, would you forgive us for ways that people like myself, pastors, leaders, elders in the church, teachers in the church have misused the scriptures? Father, would you forgive me for ways that I've misused them? Father, we want people to be drawn to Jesus Christ. We don't want to hide him under anything. So, Father, would you use the songs at the end as a way for your Holy Spirit to move through us to see where we're covering up Jesus? In a myriad of ways we cover up Jesus, Father. We just talked about the confusion of the Bible today, but, Father, there's a lot of ways we cover up Jesus. So, Father, would your Spirit move in us in that? And, Father, we're about ready to come to the table and take the Lord's table at least those of us that believe are coming to this table. Father, would you forgive us for the sins that we have willingly done? Would you give us the courage after this service is over to go make those sins right with the people that we've hurt? But Father, I also pray for the sins that we've done that we don't know that we've done. Father, I confess many times that I think I'm doing what's right, but many times I know that it turns out not to be. And and Father, it also might just be my absence and not doing anything. So Father, I know that we're weak and we fail you, but I am so grateful that your grace and mercies are new every day and that you're strong in us. And so Father, there's really none of us that are really worthy to come to the table, but yet you've made us worthy to come to the table through Jesus Christ. And so Father, would you do something special in us as we pray and as we sing and as we take the Lord's table and as we give an offering even here at the end? Lord, I just pray that you would do something special in and through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.